Luke chapter 7. There, there are Bibles in the back. We are going through Luke, the gospel according to Luke. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, as read by uh, Mike Rockefeller, one of our deacons here at King's Chapel. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Jesus is still in Galilee, ministering in Galilee, which is in the, it's north of Jerusalem. It is uh, north west of the Sea of Galilee. If you look with me in Luke chapter 7, verse 1, we have the context, or the setting. After he had finished all his saying in the hearings of the people. Luke is obviously talking about chapter 6. We spent some time in chapter 6, where Jesus was up on the mountain with this all-night prayer vigil, and as he comes down, he, he chooses and he names his apostles, and then on a level place, he began to teach his disciples what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ. After these things is this narrative. Chapter 6, verse 20, it says that Jesus was on a level place and he began to teach. His disciples are the blessed ones, the ones that have, that have already received and inherited the kingdom. The disciples of Christ are to rejoice when they are hated and excluded because they belong to and they're connected with the Son of God. Their reward is great in heaven. Followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are to love their enemies and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you, to give generously, we were told, not for any personal gain or expecting nothing in return. And then you will know that you're a child of God, that you've offered mercy and offered grace because you too have received mercy and grace in the gospel. And because of the gospel, we saw this in chapter 6, we are not to have a judgmental attitude. Not to have a judgmental attitude. That we should be followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, not quick to condemn, but quick to forgive. Followers of Christ should be more concerned about their own sins, logs sticking out of their head, right? And being more concerned about their own sin before they try to attempt to uh, help someone else in their own sinful struggles. And then last week, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus explained that those who are drinking deeply of the gospel, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, will what? Bear good fruit from a good tree. We said that the source of a good tree is the gospel, and the fruit of, the, of that tree is the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is in us and, and drawing us closer to Christ, He is transforming us into the image of Christ, and not only that works itself out, that we are to act as Christ would act. I said last week in chapter 6, we saw that there is a, a good treasure and a good heart, and that the one that has a good treasure and a good, a good heart will bear good fruit, healthy fruit. And that's when the heart is treasured is Christ. When the heart's treasure is Christ, treasuring him above all earthly treasures. And out of that treasure, out of the grace of the gospel, in love and affection of Christ, we are expected or we are obligated, look at chapter 6, verse 46, to obey the Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Jesus will say in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? Now we talk about this a lot at King's Chapel, and we'll continue as long as I'm here. Remember, the gospel is not that we obey our way into a forgiven, accepted, and right relationship with God. We don't obey our way into the gospel. The gospel is that God is holy, and God is just, and God is righteous, and there's nothing we can do to earn his favor or to somehow earn the perfect obedience necessary to come into his holy presence. God must punish sin, and he must be true to his holy nature. 
We are forgiven, we are accepted, we are reconciled to a holy God because of Christ's perfect obedience. And at the cross, in the gospel of Christ, God satisfies the requirements of his holiness and as holiness and justice by punishing sin and in love he forgives us and sets us free from its penalty and its power. Christ who lived the perfect life in our place also died in our place for our sins and on the cross justice is satisfied, God's holiness is vindicated and forgiveness is offered to a repentant sinner. That's the gospel. And therefore if we obey the commands of Christ, we do so because of Jesus' perfect life in our place. He lived the life we could never live. He died an atoning death for our sins. And therefore, that's why we obey. And what happens is in the gospel is that the failure or the fear of failure is replaced by complete forgiveness. We could be bold. We could be generous. Fear of failure is replaced by forgiveness. Sin's penalty is paid, and therefore we are set free to, to love and to obey. And the call of discipleship, family, listen, the call of discipleship is a call of obedience. But if we get it backwards, if we obey Christ in order to be accepted and forgiven, rather than we obey because we are accepted and forgiven because of the moral record of Christ, we'll find ourselves running this proverbial spinning wheel, never resting in the finished work of Christ. It's out of the finished work of Christ that we respond in obedience. Get that backwards and you're in bondage. But when we get it right, when we obey Christ, when he's the treasure of our heart because of his grace and his mercy and his love, in the gospel, we will be building our house on a sure foundation. Verse 47 of chapter 6. Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation. He laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, a stream broke against the house, and it could not shake it because it had been well built. That text leads us to our next text. And there's a connection between responding in obedience to Christ and his word, building your house on a foundation, and this next story of this centurion who has this tangible faith and trust in Christ. His faith comes in the form of a plea. He, he needs help. And even though he is unworthy of it, he receives the help of Christ. This is the first real encounter, chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, the first real encounter with a Gentile a Roman centurion, a non-Jew. And Luke is showing us how willing they are to respond to Jesus and his word. And the, and the Gentile's faith, this Roman soldier will see, combined with his humility, is not only uh, commendable, but it is a beautiful expression this morning to the church today that we bring nothing to the table, yet by grace alone, by faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, we see Christ's power come to those who don't deserve it. That is why the series is called Mission to the World. Because we receive the grace of God. We receive the mercy of Christ. It's not dependent on your social economic status, your rank or good works, as we shall see with the centurion. In this text, next week we'll see it with a woman uh, uh, who has a, a son has died, and then a woman of the city, a sinner, the verse 36 says. All these marginalized of the day, Jesus' power comes to them. His grace and mercy comes to them. 
We'll see that here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Three simple outlines, the acute condition of the servant. It takes like precedent in the first part of the setting of this narrative, the acute condition of the servant. Next, we'll see the authority of Jesus' word. Jesus speaks and he's healed. And then the amazing faith of this centurion that, that Jesus even marvels at. Three simple things. Three simple headings, I should say. Number one, the acute condition. Look at verse one again. Finished all these sayings while he was up on the mountain teaching what it means to be a disciple. He entered Capernaum. Now, if you remember from chapter four, Capernaum is located again on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Major center, a major center in the northern Galilee region. It was a, it was a, a trade economy. Uh, there was a lot of trade going on in that village, in that city, both agriculture and obviously fishing as well. We also know that Peter the Apostle came from Capernaum. His house was in Capernaum. It was a place where Jesus delivered a man who was in the synagogue and demon-possessed, and Jesus delivers him. It was also the place, very close, probably right outside Capernaum, where Jesus sees Levi, Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, and calls him out of his tax booth to say, come and follow me. And Levi leaves everything. Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus. And the narrative begins by telling us that a centurion soldier is in dire need. The text tells us that he had a servant. And a servant is sick and he's barely holding on to life. A centurion in the Roman army was an officer in charge of a hundred men. Oversaw a hundred men and they were paid pretty well for their day. Pretty well for their day. Uh, a centurion uh, a soldier... The, uh, uh, according to one historian, was a man, was men, only men who can command steady in action, they're reliable, when hard-pressed, listen to this, when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post, end quote. That's a centurion. Powerful man. A strong man. And although the soldier is a Roman centurion, we're not real clear on his... Uh, um, a nationality, but we know in verse 5 and verse 9 that he's not part of the Jewish community. And it says that this Roman soldier, the centurion, 100 men, had a servant, look at verse 2, who was highly valued by him. Now, to be highly valued is somewhat ambiguous and commentators differ on it. Uh, it could mean that the servant, the slave that he had, was an asset to him, that he took care of something that was important to the Roman soldier. But the term could also mean that he was valuable in a sense that he was highly regarded. He was esteemed, loved. He was dear to the centurion. That's the way I take the text. That's the way I see the text. Part of that is because of the testimony of the centurion, his character, his good and kind character among the Jewish people, verse 4 and 5. He's worthy for you to do this, Jesus. He, he, he loves us. He loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. You see that in verse 4 and 5. But now the centurion has a crisis. And unless God is going to intervene in this man of power and authority and, and, and financial uh, assets, unless God would intervene, the one whom he loves, the one whom he values, he esteems, he cares for, is going to surely die. Let that settle in. Unfortunately, myself and probably some of you stood by people as, that we know and that we love, slowly watch them fade into eternity. It's not fun. It's not fun. One of the things that goes through my mind often on the occasions I have watched this death watch, as they say, 
I remind myself regularly, and I've been there on this road made too many times, but I remind myself regularly, that's why Christ came. I remind myself regularly, that's why Jesus was born to a virgin girl, lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, to conquer death. To give us hope. To see the one suffering, to know for sure because of the empty tomb that all the suffering that we endure in this life, including death, which by the way is not part of life, no matter what they tell you, it's part of the curse and it must be conquered and overcome by the king of glory. Family, dive deep into the promise of God's word when you face that. 2 Corinthians 4.16 We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the work of the Spirit. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Beyond the death. For the things, Paul writes, for the things that are seen are transient. They're, they're temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal, end quote from 2 Corinthians 4. The centurion is watching this man slowly fade. Not to be morbid, but someday it'll be us. I can't do a funeral or participate in a funeral service or go to a funeral and not think, someday it'll be me. And you're thinking, oh, I got a long way to go. Well, I, I, I'm getting longer, shorter every day. But sometimes when you're at that place where you know where else to turn, and it's, what other hope do we have? We, we turn to Christ. He's our only hope in life and death. Jesus is our only hope in life and death. And the centurion obviously heard something about the healing ministry of Jesus. He's been in Capernaum. He's been all over the Sea of Galilee healing. He must have heard, and as he's watching this one he loves, this one he values, slowly fade, he must have thought to himself, Jesus doesn't know me, probably never even heard of me, I heard of him, rather than me trying to get him to come, a Roman soldier, to this Jewish itinerant preacher, come and heal my servant, I'll call in a favor, like a good Italian would do. You owe me. Remember the day I built your synagogue? So he asked some Jewish leaders to return the favor, to go to Jesus and to speak on his behalf. The elders, these prominent social religious leaders, went to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. Somewhat unusual, I'm sure, a group of Jews lobbying for a Roman soldier in that day. And they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him to do this for the centurion because the centurion had a caring heart for God's people, generous he, he proved it, right? He loved the nation. He built them a synagogue, a place for them to gather and teach and to worship. They basically looked at each other and said, look, we got to do this for this guy. He's been so good to us. He's been so kind to us. He loves our nation. We got to help him in any way we can. Roman soldiers didn't usually care much about the Jewish people, but obviously he was a friend of Israel. Luke calls these Folks who are, who are close with Israel and, and the people of God, God-fearers. We'll see that in this letter, we'll see that in the book of Acts, excuse me, which is also something Luke wrote. But what I want to notice here is very important, is that the Jew, what, what the Jewish people were thinking when they went to Jesus. We see it in the text. 
They were thinking in terms of merit. Okay, follow me. Thinking in terms of merit. Some of us think that way too, right? If I live a good life, I do the right thing, God owes me a blessing. Do good and you automatically receive good, right? Serve the church, support the church, give money, read your Bible, pray, occasionally help those in need, and somehow the good outweighs the bad. And God will receive you on the merits by which you put forth in life. And the paradigm is simple. The thinking goes, the paradigm goes, is God's power comes into the lives of the worthy. God's power comes into the lives of the worthy. God's power comes into the lives of, of those who, by their, by their moral virtue, deserve it. Unfortunately, Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches us that there's no one good enough to receive the favor of God. There's no one can earn it. In fact, look down at verse 6b. The centurion knew this. He said, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. See, God's standard and God's requirements, as we already said, is perfection. And by the standard of perfection, no one is worthy. No one except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not even good enough to rub shoulders with God's people. And young people, if you're here and you've been raised by parents who love Jesus, grandparents, uh, um, you know, guardians, there's going to come a day where you will need to make that decision on your own. The day where you will call, you will hear the call, not to rest on your own merit, but to rest on the merit of Christ and to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That day will come, we pray, and you will make that decision. Therefore, if God is to help us, it will never be because of our own merit, but because of his mercy. That's the point. Something else I want to mention here before we move on to the next slide. Look at verse 4. The word worthy in verse 4. He is worthy to have you do this for him. Now that word worthy in verse 4 means deserving. In other words, the Jewish leaders were claiming that this man by his kindness and goodness to them deserves Jesus to stop what he's doing and to go heal the man. And when you get to verse 6, look what he says. He says, I am not worthy. In other words, he's saying, I have not done enough. I have not earned enough to deserve the Lord to come to my house. You see, this all has to do with deserving and earning. Sometimes when you hear that, depending on how you were raised, if you, if, 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 if you were raised where you were kicked to the curb, if you were raised in, in, where you didn't have a whole lot of value, personal worth, then you're going to hear unworthy as you don't have value and personal worth. That's not what's being said here. I want you to know that. If you've been told to treat like you have no value, then you're going to misunderstand what the Bible teaches us because the Bible says that because each and every one of us have been created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of Christ, we have, because of our Creator, value, worth, and dignity. We belong to Him. We are created by Him. And that includes the unborn in the womb of a mother. That's why we're so pro-life here. Matthew chapter 9, 10, verse 29 Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, he says, therefore, you are of more value. That's what I'm looking at now. Value than many sparrows. We have value because we are his creation. We can't earn. We don't deserve his forgiveness and grace because we sin. And our sin has separated us from a holy God. There's a difference, and I want you to hear that this morning. 
Unworthy here means we have not earned to somehow by our moral record put God in our debt. That he has to bless us. But it does not mean that you have no value and worth. Okay? There's a difference. Because some of us have been treated as if we have none. That's not what the scripture teaches. We can't earn God's love, but we have value in the eyes of God because we are his creation. Everybody make sense to see the difference? Everybody shake your head like that? Okay. All right. The centurion had come to realize that he does not deserve, due to anything he has done, to receive Jesus' compassion and salvation, particularly the salvation of his servant. Verse 3 really comes from the word salvation. The asazo, salvation, safety, deliverance from sickness onto death. I haven't done anything to get you to come here. It doesn't mean I don't value, but it hasn't done anything to earn the favor of God. Verse 6, Jesus goes anyway. Look how our Lord is showing compassion here. He doesn't, he doesn't even know the centurion. He doesn't even know the servant. In fact, the Jewish elders that are asking him to come doesn't say anything about them being disciples of Christ, but yet God cares. And yet Jesus has compassion. Yet he goes. He's sensitive to the needs of the hurting. He's sensitive to you this morning if you are hurting. And Luke is emphasizing this, this compassion of Jesus. He's also emphasizing this, this relationship between the Jewish people and, and the Gentile soldier. They didn't always get along in Scripture. But here we see Jesus reaching across social, uh, racial boundaries and traveling with these elders. Mission to the world. When Christ is at the center and, 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 and he, he is the authority Racial, social, economic boundaries are torn down. I've said this before. We don't create unity. We join it. His name is Jesus and his mission. The acute condition of the servant. Next, the authority of his word. What's interesting here now, the, the, the narrative takes a twist. The next dispatch to the soldier from the soldier's home has a different message. It's, it's a different, different than the first message. He was having second thoughts. Instead of asking for help, look what he says. He recognizes his own inadequacies, verse uh, 6b. Lord, he says, dispatch, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Don't bother. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume, deem worthy, to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. What's so amazing, and Luke is pointing this out by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration of the Spirit. Again, this contrast between what they thought of the man, the centurion, and what the centurion thought of himself. You see, there's a huge difference when you compare yourself to the cultural norms or the cultural expectation of what it means to be worthy or deserving of God's blessing against what the cultural norm says, and when you look in the face of the beauty and glory and splendor and holiness of Jesus. He wasn't calling Caesar Lord here. He said Lord. He was talking to Jesus. And if we want to evaluate our souls, what we don't want to do is compare it with other people or, or compare it to our deeds and what we do. But look into the face of Jesus, into the beauty and glory and perfection of Christ. And the centurion, as the Lord was coming to his house, did just that. And he says, you know what? I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And that's how we come to God. Empty hands. There's a song by Sovereign Grace. We do some of their music here. It's, they got some great music. 
Uh, there's a song written by them. It's called Nothing That My Hands Can Do. Listen to the words of this song. There's nothing that my hands can do to save my guilty soul. I cannot cleanse my filthy stains or make my spirit whole. For nothing but the blood of Christ can all my sins erase. I dare not claim my righteousness, but hide within his grace, end quote. The centurion was good. Come and bring Jesus. As Jesus got closer and closer to the house, it's then he decided, you know what, I, 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 don't, I don't deserve this. So I guess the question for us this morning is, when you look to Jesus, what do you see? When you look at yourself, what do you see? They're connected here in this text. They're connected here. When we see Jesus as he really is in all his splendor, we can see clearly our true spiritual need. The most important thing we need to see about ourselves is that we are sinners in desperate need of the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. And when we see that, we see our unworthiness of our sin. We see the supreme worthiness of Christ. And we sing, hallelujah, what a savior. It's when we diminish sin and we don't see how desperately we need Christ. And as we do that, we diminish God's holiness and we don't see how desperate we need Christ. But we, when we see the holiness of God, when we, when we recognize the revelation of God and his beauty and his splendor, then we see the brokenness of our own souls and our sins of our own doing. And that should run us to Christ, our refuge, our rock, our salvation, where grace and mercy, we sang it earlier, the blood of Christ continues to flow. That is drinking deeply of the gospel. That is drinking deep of God. The supreme manifestation of the glory of God is incalculable worth and value is on display in Christ and in the gospel. We see our utter helplessness, our utter total powerlessness to do away with our sin, yet we run to God in need of grace. Dr. Phil Riken, Jesus is the holy lamb of God who was slain for our sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead for our justification, and who now deserves all honor, all blessing, glory, and power, end quote. May we never forget the gospel. And when this centurion, I believe, say, hey, can you do, do, I'm calling in my favor, go get Jesus. As Jesus was coming, I think he recognized his own brokenness and sinfulness, and he was humbled. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The famous words of C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less, end quote. He was humbled. Humble faith. I'm not worthy. He recognized how undeserving he was for Jesus to come, but he also, in that humility, he recognized, I'm sure all his power and authority didn't do anything for him. And he remained humble. He didn't demand it. He stayed humble, even in his authority, even in his position. It didn't go to his head. He needed Christ. He needed help. He had no place else to turn. You find yourself there? Where else can I go? I have no other place to go but on my face before the Lord. That's it. We find ourselves somewhere. And you know what? 
His faith was rather concrete. Look what he says in verse 7. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. One word from the distance. If you said so, Jesus, it will happen. He says in verse 8, for, in verse eight for I too am a man set under authority. Soldiers under me. And I say with my word, when I command, go. And he goes. And then when I speak again in my words, I say, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. You know what he does? He does it. I know what it means to be under authority, Jesus. That's what he's explaining. He recognizes in his own humility that he too is under authority and in authority. Very interesting. He's saying, you know what? I say this, they go. Jesus, if you say that, the, my, heel, my, my, my servant will be healed. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I know about authority. I know that when I speak, things get done. I know, Lord Jesus, when you say something, it'll get done. As a ranking Roman army soldier, he is obeyed. How much more will the spiritual forces that, are, that will be subjected to the king of kings, the king of glory, when he speaks his word? Only say a word and you'll be healed. Now, if you look at the text, it says, I too am under authority. I think what he's saying there is, he's, is a recognition that Jesus is under authority in a sense of which he is submissive to his father. Not in an ontological sense, they are one being, but there is that submissive role. It's like, I, I'm under authority and Jesus, I know you speak. I don't think he was demeaning Jesus' authority. I think, in fact, he was emphasizing the fact that he could speak and it could be done. He believed he could heal him. And what's so interesting about the text, if you read all of chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, it says that the very last verse he was healed. The emphasis is not on the healing, as we've seen in many places before. The emphasis, the focus is on the power and authority of Jesus being manifested through this centurion's humble faith in Christ. And how this man who had a power and authority, who could command uh, many things to be done, could not do what he wanted to do and needed to be done for a servant, yet calls upon the Lord who has that authority, who can speak a word, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, you speak the word, and my servant can be healed. You know, many times when we talk about faith, right, this man's had humble faith. We talk about faith in our culture we uh, subjectivize it. In other words, we, are, we come to it in a very subjective way, emotionally, like this feels right, this feels good. We think of emotion. The premise is, it doesn't matter what you believe, it doesn't matter what, what religion you follow, or it doesn't matter what, what, what faith you have, what matters is that you believe with your whole heart. Hitler believed what he was doing right with his whole heart. He was evil. Let me explain where I'm going with this illustration. Tim Keller loves this illustration, and I heard him speak it. I think it's great. Two mountain climbers going up a mountain. And as they're climbing up the mountain, suddenly they trip, and both of them fall on a ledge. And they're on the ledge, and there's only two ways off the ledge. There's a, a little rocky outcrop over here that you could step on, and another one on this side that you could step on and get down off this ledge that they fell on. And one climber says, I know that, that this rocky uh, outcrop will hold me. I have no doubts. I'm filled with assurance. I'm going to step that way. And the other climber says, you know, I don't know. I don't know which way is right. I'm scared to death. Oh my, I, I, I don't know what to do. 
I think I'm going to step on this way. And the first one who had the assurance that I know this is the right way steps out on the outcrop and it gives way and he falls. And the other man who's scared to death, not really sure, steps out on this outcrop of this rock and it holds him and down the mountain he goes. And then the question is, who was saved? The man who believed with his whole heart? No, the man who believed in the right rock. And that's the truth. That's our comfort. It's not the strength of your faith or the perfection of your faith. It's the object of your faith that matters. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ, risen Lord, and his revealed word to us. And at times we struggle. At times we're in difficulties. At times that we are in hardship. Uh, don't rely on circumstances. Don't rely on the, the subjective emotions you may be feeling on the moment. Rely upon the living God, the object of our faith, and his word that he has given to us. Saving faith, building your life on the rock, is not just something that you're emotionally connected to, what feels right. It's transform. listen, it's transferring your, your fundamental basic life trust on Jesus Christ and his word. Final authority. And the centurion apparently realized that the one who has power over life and death can heal. Not Rome, not his money, not his power, not his own ability. He was humbled and he trusted in Christ alone. So we have, we have the, the condition of the, of the servant, the authority of Jesus' word, and finally we'll look at this faith. Look at the faith of the centurion. Look, look at verse 9 with me. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Interesting, the word marveled in the four gospel accounts is used one other time with Jesus. And it was about unbelief, Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in Nazareth, and Jesus says he was amazed, marveled at the lack of faith they had. Here he is marveled, amazed, another word we can use, or astonished by the faith of this centurion. And Jesus did not want everyone to miss it. And he turned, look what he says. He says, he turned to the crowd that was following him. You can see him just turn around and say, hey, do you see this? I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when I read that, I thought, I would love the Lord Jesus to say that about me. How about you? How about us? That, that, that he marvels at our faith. He's astonished at our faith. He, he, he's amazed about our belief and our trust in him. He looks at this man, this powerful man, who, who is in command of at least 100 military soldiers, and he's amazed at his humility as he asks, I need help. He looked at this man who had material wealth, he was astonished that he came to understand that nothing in the world could help him at the moment, but he needs a savior. Jesus marveled that such a man of well-known character was willing to recognize his unworthiness and the worthiness of Christ. Jesus was amazed to find someone who was willing to take him at his word with complete confidence in the power of his command. He marveled it. This Gentile outside the community, the covenant community, he said, even one in Israel, we can't find someone with such faith. He trusted in 
Christ. He rested in the word. And notice the Jewish elders, the centurion supporters came on his behalf, as we said. You know, you, you should do this for him. He is worthy. They praised him for his works, but Jesus marveled at his faith. I want you to catch that. They praised his works. Jesus marveled at his faith. Not deeds that he has done in order to earn favor. A faith that not thinks, you know what, I deserve this. But faith in the compassion and the grace and mercy of Christ. I'm reminded again, I think I mentioned this last week. I just love this passage. The Apostle Paul. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This man's like, I got everything that I need and all that I want, and I cannot get this done. I need help. I count everything Paul says as a loss uh, because of the surpassing worth, value, treasure of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may know Christ. Look with me at verse 10 to close. It's like an afterthought. He marvels at his faith. We see this contrast between what they think of the, of the centurion, what the centurion thinks. We see this, this, this faith of the centurion. And then those who went to his house, they found the servant well. He was fine. Jesus spoke. He didn't go to the house. He, he, he didn't go into the room. And the servant was fully recovered. He, he didn't go in to touch him as he's done in other cases. He didn't go in next and lean next to the, to, the, to, the, to the bed where the sick man was. The Lord restores health to a dying man by a single word. His command and the disease leaves whatever was wrong. It departs from him. Remember, God spoke the universe into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And everything came to being. And now, through his word, Jesus speaks and brings life to a dying man. Charles Ryrie writes, Faith is always cultivated by looking at its object. Faith is always weakened by looking at itself. When we come to Christ for salvation, we are told to believe Him. We are exhorted to live the Christian life by walking by faith in Him. If we look at our faith, we will be discouraged. If we look at Him, our faith will be strengthened. End quote. That's the story, right? That our salvation, our redemption, our reconciliation is not granted on the basis of our good deeds and works. Not our merit or anything we have done. It is grounded on Christ alone. Faith that is not confident that we've done our best and now God owes us. No, genuine faith is abandoning trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying solely on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. I want to end our time giving you another story. We'll keep with the uh, mountain climbing theme. I thought it would be okay. Uh, an article written by a man by the name of Royal Robbins. He is a professional mountain climber. Um, he wrote an article for uh, the Sports Illustrated some years back. And listen to this article. In the article, he describes the one indispensable fact about mountain climbing. He says it's not physical strength, per se, or even having the safest and best equipment, or even proper training, but the ability to see things as they really are. I quote, If we are keenly alert and aware of the rock of what we are doing on it, if we are honest with ourselves and our capability and weaknesses, for climbing is an exercise in reality, 
He who sees it clearly is on safe ground, regardless of his experience or his skill. But he who sees reality as he should or he would like to be, would like it to be, may have his illusions rudely stripped away from his eyes when the ground comes up fast, end quote. In other words, what he's saying is, if you want to live in some fantasy world and you want to have some false reality, man, when you step out, it's not going to go well. But if we recognize in this life the truth, the reality, not some fanciful idea of what we want it to be, being honest with ourselves, honest about our sins, honest about our inability to do anything about our sins, honest about our, our capabilities and our weaknesses, that, that's where, that's where we, we put our faith in. That's when our faith gets honed into Jesus because we are weak. We are incapable. There's nothing we could do about our sin. And we throw ourselves on the faith on Christ, the object of our faith. And then we see the true reality of life. Christ and his word, listen family, is the utmost reality in the universe. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our allegiance. He alone forgives sins. He alone speaks ultimate truth. He alone comes to the weak and helpless in time of need. He alone can give us the compassion that we so desperately want. And family, if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, it is our hope that this narrative encourages you, strengthens your faith, gives you confidence because of who Jesus is. He's the object of our faith. He's the risen Lord. He's the reigning, ruling, sovereign one of the universe. And at the same time, I, I pray that this, this narrative, as we see the centurion's faith, will humble us as we recognize that salvation is a gift. It is a gift given to us by grace and grace alone. But if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. You place your faith in Christ. Christ invites you to come to him by faith. Like the, like, like the condition of the servant, we're all desperately in this condition of dying sinners. We're not worthy of Christ, but Jesus has the authority and the power to rescue you and redeem you. And whatever you need in your pain, whatever you need uh, in your sorrow, he'll give you complete forgiveness and restoration. You'll have a hope and hope only in him. All we have to do is trust Christ. As a centurion trusted him in humble faith, and recognizing all that Jesus can do in his salvation, in his work of salvation by grace alone. Have you trusted Christ? The band's going to lead us. You guys can come on up. And here's the song, and, and I, I, I say this often. I just remind myself, I want to remind you, the band is great, um, but we're not singing to the screen. We're singing to Jesus. And this song that we're going to sing how great the chasm that lay between us. That's our sin. The mountain I could not climb. I can't reach you, Lord. But I turned to heaven. I spoke your name. And through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. What great mercy. What boundless grace. You stepped out of glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross is spoken. I am forgiven. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Praise the one who set me free. Can we sing that with our whole heart unto the Lord in response of his grace and his compassion toward us who could never earn it, but he freely gives it to us. Let's stand together. You can shut the lights and let's pray before the band leads us. Father, we are in desperate need of you and we ask 
you, Lord, and by the power of your spirit, by the beauty and glory of our Savior, that we would sing this song in response to your word, in response to Jesus with our whole heart. Recognizing, God, we could never run that mountain, that we could never reach the top, we could never be perfect as you have called us to be. We could never, ever earn salvation, but you came to us. You pursued us. You sought after us. You redeemed us. You rescued us, and you saved us, Lord, when we were and could never earn it or work our way toward it. So, Father, help us to respond with faith today, trusting you, and, Lord, relying upon your grace and your mercy alone. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.